Well, my subject, this, well, it's not my subject, it's the subject of the passage before us, is faith. Faith. Faith is the subject of Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10 in my Bible. It's headed, a centurion's faith. Faith. There's many who have defined faith, and there's many ways you could define it, or different angles you could put on it. For the sake of what we're thinking about this morning, faith is that wonderful, gracious ability given by God whereby we can see God as he truly is and ourselves as we are in view of him and all that God has done to make a way to him. Faith is essential and I think maybe out of a reaction to uh, prosperity gospel and health and wealth movements who emphasize faith, faith, faith is so often little spoken about in our circles. We may be stopped short, we think of faith in terms of how we can be saved, but we, we, we stop at that point. And we don't emphasize that the whole of the Christian life is a life of faith. Faith is what is said here to please our Saviour. You see this in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And he turned him about, he literally got the man and he turned him to face the, the, the crowds of people. In other words, look at this man, I'm speaking about what characterises this man. And what does he say? I have not found so great a faith, no, not in all Israel. This man's faith caused our Lord Jesus to marvel. It was a profound wonder. It was therefore this man's faith that got the blessing the man sought. We know that it is by faith and not by works that we are saved, Ephesians 2, verse 8. We know that it is the absence of faith which condemns, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 2. And dear friends, you wouldn't last five minutes in the Christian life if you had not faith. We live by faith. And indeed, the scriptures say, without faith, we cannot please him. And so I think there's a tendency, you know, we, we, we're lost in our sins and then we hear this good news of Jesus Christ. He came to save me. He died for me on the cross. He, he, he made a way of salvation for every sinner who would come to him in repentance and faith. And we believe and we, we look to the Lord and we're saved. We behold the Lamb of God. Oh, well, I've, I've got the faith bit over with. But as Martin Luther said concerning repentance, which is really one side of the coin of faith, belief and repentance, two sides of the same coin, the whole life is a life of repentance. The whole life is a life of faith. Now, just to lead us into the, the subject, just by way of introduction, has it, always, has it ever occurred to you, have you ever pondered or meditated on the fact that man hasn't always needed faith? What do I mean? Well, if you think of man as he was made in the garden, made in his original state, made upright and righteous, walked with the Lord in the garden, man didn't need faith. Faith was not necessary. Man had sight of God. Man knew who God was, what God was like, what was required of him. Adam would have known what, was, what, what, what he had to do to please God and to walk with God. And so when we talk about faith, we're speaking about what is necessary for men and women to know God in a fallen world. It is the fall of Adam, it is our sin in Adam, our rebellion in Adam, and our, our condition in Adam. As men and women who are darkened in our understanding, who have fallen from God, that, that require faith. Faith is, if you like, um, to put it, maybe um, some of you 
probably need assistance walking, whether that be a walking stick or a, or a wheelchair. Without these assistances, these devices, you, you couldn't walk. Well, faith is that gift given by God to enable us to know God and to walk with God and to enjoy God in a condition of fallen humanity. And so, it is vital then that we think about this. Indeed, it is the absence of faith in this world, a proper knowledge of God and ourselves, that is the cause of all the misery in this world. Dare I say that every church split and every fallout among Christians to some degree or another is caused by the absence of acting in faith. In other words, they fail to bring to bear the word of God to the situation and to deal with something in prayer and in, and in wisdom. We act in the flesh and we act by sight and we act in impulse and emotion and feelings and in our passions. All our problems often are caused, in our, that, that are caused by ourselves are caused by this absence of faith. But how necessary faith is. You know, I often think about our brothers and sisters in the, in the Eastern world who have arranged marriages. It's not just Muslims that do it. Some Christians practice arranged marriages in some cultures, and we're not here to, to judge them for that or to cast any. We have our own uh, preference in this regard. Um, but I often think to myself, I wonder how difficult their first year of marriage is. Because even in a marriage where you've courted someone, you've got to know them, you've spent time with them, um, often your first couple of years are quite challenging, aren't they? Why? Because they, they kept a lot of things hidden very well. And you really get to know a person um, in that situation. And what is the issue of all the conflict? Well, because you don't know everything about your wife. You don't know their interests. You don't know all their tastes and preferences. You don't know all their opinions as much as you might try. And some, suddenly you, you get married and you find it's like a, a clash of two trains and you suddenly realise, oh, there's a lot of things I didn't know about them. Now imagine how difficult it must be in an arranged marriage situation. You put these two people together who, who haven't had this experience. The absence of knowledge is the cause of all problems. And it is the absence of faith then, knowing who God is and what he is like. It is the cause of much counterfeit worship in churches today, isn't it? Let's, let's call it what it is. The reason so many churches have moved to an entertainment model of church and worship and preaching is because this, this, some people are nervous of saying this because they sort of, well, they might be brothers. It, it, at its root, it comes down to they do not know God. It is the loss of a knowledge of who God is in his holiness and majesty and what he is like. And therefore the loss of our knowledge of ourselves in the light of who God is that is the cause of all the problems we are seeing. Which is why God has given us the scriptures. Paul says to Timothy, from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. And of course, the scriptures make known Christ. Our Lord was on the Emmaus Road, we read, was beginning at Moses and all the prophets. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But of course, faith is not automatic. Not all have faith, Paul said to the Thessalonians. Not everyone who reads the Bible has faith. Now, I think it's very interesting and not a coincidence that Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, places the account of the centurion straight after the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in verses 46 to 49 of the previous chapter in chapter 6, 
he speaks about those who hear the word of God and do it, who believe it, respond to it. I better have a foundation because storms could come. I better have a basis to build my life upon. I better have Christ and his righteousness and all his saving accomplishments as the foundation upon my life because otherwise I will not survive the floods of judgment when they come. And the man who thinks, I, I don't need the Lord. I don't need his word. I don't need his teaching. I'll just build my life as I will. Problem is, when the storms come and the floods come and the rains come and beat against that house, it will not survive. So, it comes down to how do we respond to God's word. And here is a man, a centurion, a Roman, not even a Jew, a Gentile, who has responded in faith to Christ, his claims, his person, and his work. Faith, if you like, brings truth into clear colour or focus. I remember talking to a young man who, he's still this day not a believer, I pray for him regularly, and uh, he's what I would call an intellectual believer. He, he believes, because he was raised in a Christian home, this is God's book, this is God's word. He has a degree of, you might call, natural regard for it. And he believes that all that Jesus said is true in here. And yet, he has not repented of his sins. He hasn't turned to Christ. He loves his sin he hasn't seen in the scriptures the glory of Christ that would make him forsake his sin. And, and I said to him, I said, well, what, what's the issue if you believe it's true? He said, well, I, I, maybe if I put it like this. He said, when I watch a documentary from the Great Wars, particularly the First World War, it's all in black and white. I know it happened, but when it's in black and white, it, it, it just seems, I know intellectually that, that's real footage that it happened, but it just seems so other, so separate. Now, I don't know if any of you saw Peter Jackson, Jackson's edits of some of the World War I footage. He put colour into it. He, he uh, put voices into the people and sort of interpreting what their mouths may have been saying and played it. It was only a few years back. And it completely transformed life in the trenches and made it, in a way, real, more real to a generation who lived so far away from those events. And that's like what faith does. Faith takes it from mere history to living history that... It, it almost takes you and places you in the account. You know when our, when our Lord says, I am with you always to the end of the age. What our Lord is saying to the disciples, the I who has been with you in the Gospels, as I've been with you in the Gospels, as I dealt with the centurion, as I dealt with the woman who had bleeding, I, that same Christ, I haven't changed. I will be with you as I was with all of these people. I will be with you to the end of the age as I was with them. And so when we read the Gospels, we are encouraged, I believe, to put ourselves in their shoes and by faith to engage with Jesus as he's being unfolded to us there that we might receive the same blessings uh, that they did. Faith then brings Christ near to us. Well then, how does faith occur? How does it occur for the first time if you know not Christ? But how does faith continue to be cultivated? What's the context whereby faith can arise in a man or woman, boy or girl? Well, my first point then this morning is when need dawns. When need dawns. Faith can only occur where there is need. Where there is need. Faith can only develop or be fostered in an environment when there is the absence of self-sufficiency. Here is a man, verses 1 to 3, centurion. 
He's a powerful man. He uh, has over 100 men at his disposal. He has authority in the region in Capernaum. He has tremendous accountability to Herod Antipas. He has wealth. He has privilege. He has comfort. He's no doubt destined for great things. Many centurions would have been working for positions in the Senate as they got older. In some ways, you could say the world was his oyster. Anywhere in the Roman Empire, he could be stationed. He was always looking for a better position. He clearly had loyal servants. We know that from the narrative. Even the Jews were quite fond of him, as we will discover. And yet there's a very unusual feature about this centurion. And it is unusual, isn't it? Just think about the centurion soldiers, the Roman soldiers that crucified the Lord. The arrogance, the dismissiveness, the pride which mocked him and put a crown of thorns and twisted it into his head. This centurion, on the other hand, it seems has a deep regard for Yahweh, for Jehovah. You see that in verse 4. The Jews came to speak on his behalf. And they say in verse 5, that he, well, verse 4, he's worthy. Why? Because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So how is it that this, this Gentile, pagan centurion has come to a place where he has a regard for the Jewish nation? Well, maybe he was disillusioned. And we read many accounts, you can read them, of how as Rome began to wane, it was partly to do, like what we're seeing in our society, in increasing immorality and, and lack of discipline. And maybe he was seeing the impact of a pagan worldview on his soldiers and he couldn't keep them in line. Maybe he saw the emptiness of pagan lifestyle. Um, it hasn't, he's not unique in history. There have been many men, great men, that have actually historically, without being true converts, have had regard for the Christian faith. One that comes to my mind is, is Benjamin Franklin. I don't know if you've read Benjamin Franklin, but he was deeply fond of George Whitfield. And they had tremendous exchanges. And he says of Whitfield's impact in the area, quote, it's wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants from being faultless or indifferent about religion. It seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that no one could walk into the town without hearing psalms and hymns in every family of the street. And then he actually later went on to offer George Whitford accommodation. He said, you know my house? If you can cope with its scanty accommodations, you're most heartily welcome. But here comes the... You see the man's heart. Though he had this outward regard like the centurion here, when Christ, Whitford replied to him and said, um, if this offer is for Christ's sake, I should not miss... Of a, I should not miss an opportunity for a reward. Franklin said, it was not for Christ's sake, but for your sake. He had respect, but not faith. Not saving faith. And we cannot say for sure where this centurion at the initial stage is at on the spectrum. But what we do know is by the time you come to verse 9 and Jesus' observation in his engagement with the Lord, faith has occurred. But how could he have come to this regard for Israel's God? Well, we know that by this time, the, uh, the, the, the Jewish scriptures in the Hebrew had been translated into the Greek. It's called the Septuagint, and, and maybe he'd been reading it. He'd come to have a deep respect and reverence for the, uh, the God of Israel, his laws. Um, he could see the difference it made to the Jewish people and the way they lived their lives. 
He's got a regard then, like Benjamin Franklin, who offered Whitfield his assistance. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to build you a synagogue. I'm going to do what I can to promote something which actually I see is quite healthy. And that's a good thing. I think we should pray for that. We obviously pray for conversions. We should also pray the Lord raises up people who God has, in his common grace, given them a degree of insight and wisdom to see that this book will be a blessing to the land uh, when it is upheld and when it is given the opportunity to be preached and explained. But until now, it doesn't say that he was converted. He just had regard for the nation. That's what it says, regard. It doesn't say he loved Yahweh. It doesn't say that he, he lived for Yahweh. He worshipped Yahweh. He just had a regard for the nation. Up until now, he hasn't approached the Lord Jesus Christ until he suddenly had a need. Faith occurs when there is great need. What is the need? His servant, verse 2, who was very dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. Now, interestingly, verse 7 is translated servant again, my servant. But the Greek word there is paidos, which means child. He's speaking of this servant as a child to him. He has a, clearly a, a fatherly affection. He is extremely ill. In, in Matthew 8, verse 6, we encounter... Another description of this man's illness. He says, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. So this is not just a young boy who's dying, but he's tormented as he is dying. And he is deeply distressed about him. Now here was a man who, genuinely speaking, could have done what he, what he had more opportunity to do whatever he wanted to bring about a recovery. He had money at his disposal. He had physicians at his disposal. If one of his men was sick, he could have certainly got in contact with powerful people to get the solutions. But what can he do in the face of this man's need? Absolutely nothing. He's absolutely powerless. Death is at the door. And it's still true today, isn't it? With all our advances in medicine, with all of our progress in technology and healthcare and all of these things, man is still utterly powerless in the face of death. For all the NHS and for all the clapping, people in our land for two or three years were living in absolute paralysis of fear because of death. And this man confronted death. Death, death is often a great awakener for a lot of people. It forces men and women to think about mortality. Uh, death is an enemy in the sense that it's coming. It's, it's an enemy of us. It was never intended to be in this world, but it's come into this world through sin. But we can't solve death. And I like to think from what we read here in the narrative that it was this situation that got him speaking about spiritual things. Why do I say that? Have I got an authority to say that? I believe I do, because in verse 3 it says, When he heard of Jesus... Context, what's just come before? The Sermon on the Mount. Maybe people have brought him a report of all that Jesus has been saying. Do you know what this man said? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who sense their unworthiness before a holy God and their sense of sin and inability to do anything to save themselves. Blessed are those who, who are concerned about the state of their souls and are hungry for righteousness, hungry for salvation, hungry for God's mercy, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who mourn, who mourn what they've done, who mourn their rebellion against God, who mourn their need, for they shall be comforted. And he hears these things. 
And he never before ever thought about approaching Israel's God. Because he wasn't allowed in the temple, was he? As a Gentile. He could only stand in the courts. He didn't have the glimpses. He couldn't see the types and the shadows that the Jews could see. And yet he now hears this description of a man which he feels is him. A man who's poor in spirit. A man who's mourning, mourning the godlessness of his society and wishing that he could be saved out of it. And this need then causes this proud by nature, powerful man to come to the Lord Jesus Christ begging, pleading that the Lord would do something. Now I imagine he'd also heard about what is recorded for us in John 4 in verse 46 where the Lord Jesus healed a nobleman's son. In the same region, Jesus came, verse 46, into Cana of Galilee where he made water wine and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. That's where he's from. And when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then he inquired he and them of them of the hour which he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth and himself believed. Maybe this companion centurion then has heard that at the word of Jesus this man was made ill. And he has a servant that needs healing. The problem is, how does he come? How does he approach one who is the Son of God? He is a Roman, he is a Gentile, he is a, what the Jews called a dog. Well, there's two views you could have about how you approach him. And the first one is a view of blindness that we see characterised by the Jews whom speak on his behalf. And the second way you can approach him is the way the centurion himself ends up approaching him. So secondly, see, when blindness reigns, this is what we would call the barrier to faith. The barrier to faith. So in verse 3, he, uh, he sent the elders of the Jews. This, I think, speaks of his reverence. He, he was feeling unworthy to come. So he thinks, well, maybe if he won't hear me, maybe he will hear uh, these people. But these Jews come. Are they characterised by faith? This is the irony in this passage. Are the Jews characterised by faith? What is the reason that they plead? What is the basis upon which they make that this centurion should receive a blessing? Works. They say, they besought him instantly, verse 4, that he was worthy. You should bless him. You should heal him because he's worthy. He's a good candidate. He's just the kind of man that a, 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 a prophet like you should bless. Why? Well, he loves our synagogue and he built us a synagogue. A synagogue. He loves our nation and he built us a synagogue. He's entitled for you. This is a kind of a negotiation. He's done this for you. Yeah? You do something for him. He, he, you owe him something, really. How ironic. 
that they who had the scriptures, that they who had them read every Sabbath day in the synagogues, that read verses like, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? They that read verses, this is him, on him, I, I will look upon him, who is of a broken and a contrite heart, and who trembles at my word. That they who had these very passages felt that the way to expect from God was to come and present yourself and all your accomplishments and achievements. And is this not the majority view even today? God owes us something. It's interesting, isn't it? Think of a, when there's a tragedy, like an aeroplane crash or something. Who are people first to blame? God. But how many planes don't crash? How many planes land? More than that crash. But people don't thank God for the ones that land. You see, there's, there's an animosity in the human heart that feels that somehow we are owed something by God. We don't need to thank God for when things go well because we deserve things to go well. And when things don't go well, we blame God. These Jews did not grasp the real issue of the human heart. Now, I'm going to tell you a true story of a minister who went to live in a very tropical climate. And he describes for us, in a very vivid way, the true horror of the sin of the human heart. This is what he says. This minister says, I spent a significant portion of my life living in tropical countries. For a time, my wife and I lived in a house set on low stilts. On one occasion, a very large rat chose to crawl into the narrow space under our house and die. I don't know if any of you have had a dead rat in your house. It stinks. Unfortunately, the vermin expired right under our little bedroom. Initially, we thought... We had no option but to let the body decay into oblivion. The carcass, rotting in the hot, humid climate, sent a stupefying odour into our bedroom, giving a new meaning to the word foul. The rat smelled so rank that my wife and I found it impossible to sleep. We were forced to retreat to another part of the house. Sleeping in close proximity to that evil-smelling carcass was not normal to, or natural to us. We fled. The next morning, my son Andrew volunteered to remedy the situation. He located a long stick, reaching deep into the crawl space under the house. He slowly worked the dead rat towards the opening. As it got close, Andrew pulled back in revulsion and said, Dad, the beast is full of maggots. Gag. Andrew took a plastic bag, sticking it over his hand, reached far under the house, grabbing a miserable creature by its tail. He pulled the worm-infested rat out, of, out into the open. Holding the offended remains far from his body, he ran towards the jungle that bordered the property and with a mighty swing flung the rat far from our presence. If that rat had been alive and able to sense Andrew's emotions, he would have been aware that Andrew was disgusted by him, indeed angry. And if that rat could have read Andrew's thoughts as he was flung into the woods, he would have heard him say, get out of here. For how long? Andrew would have answered, forever. And the dead rat, he said, illustrates the three ways God feels about sin. First, he is angry. This is not a wrath full of malice or meanness. God is not a hothead who has lost his temper. 
It is a reflection of God's pure and perfect character. It might be best understood as a type of righteous indignation. Just as we were disturbed with the rotten rats, so the Lord is angry about sin. It grieves him. And it doesn't matter how beautiful the house was. It doesn't matter. They couldn't enjoy it. It doesn't matter how nicely the furniture was arranged. It doesn't matter how beautiful their bedroom was. There was a stinking rat beneath the surface. And that's what they're pleading. These Jews are pleading. He's built our synagogue. He loves our nation. He, look at his life. And yet beneath this man's outward regard for Israel was a sinful, wicked heart. And it seems that the man, the centurion, understood that, but they didn't. I think the fact that the man sent the Jews on his behalf shows you he was already feeling something of that mourning, that, 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 that poverty of spirit in himself. I can't go. I'm too sinful. It seems that what I often call worm theology had taken hold of him. I'm a worm. I'm unworthy to approach one. Which is amazing. Here is a centurion that could have walked into a synagogue and closed it down. And yet this centurion is too afraid to approach the Lord Jesus Christ. But he sends these Jews. It seems, though, the Jews have not got the message. He is worthy, they say. I was once having a car fixed. I've had many cars fixed over the years. And uh, there was a problem with the oil tank. And uh, do you know what the mechanic said to me? He said, if you've got a problem with the oil tank, fill it up and get rid of it. In other words, patch up the outside, ignore the inside, pretend everything's okay and deceive someone to buy the car. And that's what people are doing. It's what we do by nature, isn't it? You know, and he, don't think, oh, well, I'm a Christian, this doesn't apply. To, it does apply to you, it applies to me. We do this all the time if we feel like we've had a bad week or we haven't been reading our Bible, we haven't had a good prayer life. We, we don't feel like coming to church. We, we don't feel like uh, praying and we wait to a time when we feel a bit more like something spiritual, when we've maybe cancelled out the bad week with a good week. But the point is we're thinking just like these Jews. We think that God is interested in our righteousness. As if that is the basis upon which we come. We're just like the Jews. I can come now, I'm worthy for you to bless me because I've read my Bible this week. Or because I've overcome that besetting sin this week. This is why we continually need the preaching of the gospel. This is why we need evangelistic sermons. Because whilst we are in this body of sin, the sinful nature still undermines the renewed mind and poisons it so that we start thinking the way we used to think. You know, we're always prone to extremes as Christians, yeah? We're always reaction, reactionary theology, yeah? Now, there's a right reaction to what I call easy believerism, where there's no preaching of sin, no preaching of hell, no preaching of judgment, no preaching of wrath. It's all by grace, man. And, and yeah, we, we... But I have encountered in our kinds of circle what I call worm theology. Yeah? Oh, I'm such a worm. We're such terrible worms. We're lied in the dust. Oh, we're such wicked men and women. Oh, we're... Now, everything that person's saying is true. And it needs to be said. And it needs to be preached. I'm not undermining that. But they never, ever... You never hear... Some of these people, it's all they say. They walk around like this. How are you? Oh, better than I deserve. It's always negative. Christ sets us free. We're in grace. The New Testament speaks of joy unspeakable, full of glory. 
No wonder the charismatics look at a lot of us and go, I don't want what they've got. I wouldn't either if I was looking at us from the outside. Sometimes if I was looking at myself, I'd think I wouldn't. If, if that's how he is, his theology must be the cause of that. So we, we are prone to extremes. These, these Jews could have done with a little bit of worm theology, couldn't they? Yeah, Just to sort of undermine their self-works-based view of salvation. But actually this man, it seems to me, needed some encouragement out of worm theology. In other words, he couldn't even approach him that he sent people on his behalf. And so, thirdly and lastly, see when grace begins. They take Jesus to him. But it's like he's, he's so into worm theology that he's, even, he's now even he's panicking when he sees him coming on a distance. No, no, this wasn't meant to happen. He wasn't meant to come near me. I'm a worm. I'm a sinner. I'm unrighteous. I'm a Gentile. I'm a pagan. And so he, he sent friends with a message. Trouble not thyself. For I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Don't come near me. Stay away. I myself, I thought myself not worthy to come unto thee. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. There's reverence, there's conviction of sin, there's unworthiness. But his need has responded to what the Lord has been saying when he heard these things, verse 3, and now faith is, grace is beginning to dawn in his soul, and faith is beginning uh, to rise. It's tremendous that he says, don't come to my house. It would have been a great house, grand house, servants, scented, flowered. It would have been better than Matthew's house or Peter's house. And again, that just drives you to the, to the, to the state of this man's heart. He would have known the kind of places Jesus ate and drank in, the homes of tax collectors and sinners. And yet he's got probably the best house in Capernaum. And he says, don't come to my house. I am not worthy. He sees who he is. But he hasn't just seen who he is himself. He's seen who Jesus is. How do we know that? Just say the word, verse 7, and then he goes on to explain in verse 8 the basis upon which he believes he's able to just say the word. He illustrates it using himself. I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. He's saying, I know what it is to have authority. And I know what it is to be able to have a number of people under my charge, and when I say something, it gets done. They obey my instruction. Now, he knows that his soldiers don't have to see him to obey his commandments. If a piece of writing comes through a messenger to his men, whether they've seen him or not, or heard it from his audible mouth or not, they know that the command has come from their, their, their leader, and they are therefore obeying. Now, he's arguing, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. This man is saying, if I, a man, just a man, have the authority to get, things done and significant things done to ensure that when I say this is going to happen, it happens. I know that you have authority to do whatever you please. 
This is a tremendous statement. This man, is, his servant, is being tormented and he's dying and he's effectively saying, there is nothing under the whole of heaven and earth that you cannot do. You know, most modern commentators are afraid to suggest that anyone believed he was the Son of God until after the disciples realised. This is a statement of faith. He is saying, you are the Lord. Because only the Lord can do the things that he's describing. But he's, I've said he's got saving faith. Faith has begun to dawn in his heart. Why? Not just because he's ascribed power to him. I'm pretty sure if I said to any of you, is God able to save you? Is God able to forgive your sins? You would say, well, of course. But the second part of faith is, is God willing to save you? And, and, and that's often where we get stuck. Is his power joined with pity? Is his love, as the hymn says, how, great is, how good is the God we adore, our great and unchangeable friend. His love is as great as his power. And this man, clearly, in making the request of him, just say the word, he has got a sufficient grasp, not just of the power of the Lord Jesus to hear him, but the willingness of the Lord Jesus to hear him, or he would not have asked. He has believed what the Lord said. He has heard uh, uh, the description of the kind of man or woman that is comforted, the poor in spirit, the hungry. And he, he goes, well, that's me. I'm needy. I'm poor and needy. I have no works for which to plead. I'm too unworthy for him. But he said it's such people that he hears. It's such people that he looks upon. It's such people that he pronounces is blessed. And so actually... He is expressing here more than a desire for his servant to be healed. He is asking in that request for him to be forgiven. He knows he can't, because of his view of the holiness of God, he knows he can't make a claim upon this God unless he first be gracious, unless he first be merciful and be forgiving. At the word, at the word, Matthew 8, verse 13. We read, Jesus said to the centurion, in Matthew's account, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the self-same hour. Faith pleases Christ. Dear friends, can I say something? We do not honour God by believing him to be stingy. When we have that temptation to think, I can't come to him because I'm so unworthy, if we stop short at that, that doesn't honour and glorify God. Because that says, but my sins are too great a problem for God to deal with. Or my, my wickedness is, is too great for his mercy. When, when we have that kind of mindset, that doesn't honour and glorify God. I'll tell you what honours and glorifies God and brings great praise to his name. When we say, I am unworthy, but I believe that he is greater than all my sin. And I can come to him and I can plead boldly with him. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has declared himself as the saviour of sinners. And that's exactly what I am. It's what I've been this week. It's what I was yesterday. It's what I am today. But I can come. I can ask. 
if we only see ourselves as worms, we have not got biblical faith. Faith sees not just the sin which grieves God, but faith sees the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Faith believes that Christ satisfied the wrath of God. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for a guilty conscience. The Spirit does prick us and convict us for sure. But it is finished. And yes, we want to learn new things in the Word of God. We want to be in taught doctrine. But if we continue on learning new things and just overlook this basic fact, we will be miserable Christians. Because, friends, though we want to grow in righteousness and grow in grace, my dear friends, until you reach glory, you will never stop sinning. You will never stop sinning. And the only way, therefore, you will have joy in the Christian life is if you're able to say, I am a great sinner, but he is a great saviour. The instinct that you have when you sin to stay away from God does not come from God. Where does that come from? That's exactly what Adam and Eve did when they sinned. They hid. Because why did they hid? Because they did not know of God's mercy and grace at that point. But God provided coverings for them to hide their shame and their nakedness. We need to fight against that instinct to hide from God when we sin and rather say, I've sinned, I must go to God for he will abundantly pardon. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But it doesn't stop there, does it? But with thee there is forgiveness that thou mayest be feared. And here's the thing, the fear of God is a filial, childlike fear. It's not a fear that God's going to destroy me. The unbeliever can know that. The fear of God that the psalmist is describing there is a fear that says, I've seen my sins and how great they are. I could not stand. And yet, wonder of all wonders, he's taken them away. How could I continue on in a life of sin against such a good God? It's a fear that doesn't want to sin because you've tasted of his mercy and grace. It's a childlike fear to a loving father who has done everything for you. This is what it is to fear God. It is a reverence that comes from having been forgiven. He's so good and so gracious, despite his glory and holiness. But he's taken all my sin away. And this gives us hope for our land, doesn't it? You know, they, they plead for the blessing, the Jewish elders based upon his works. We have nothing to plead before God for our nation but the mercy of God. Just say the word, Lord, and you can do it. Those unconverted children of yours, those unconverted grandchildren, those unconverted siblings, and just say the word, Lord. Just say the word. It, it may take a tragedy in their life. It may take the loss of a loved one. It may take a death. It may take a funeral. We have to have that conviction that say, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to bring them to the place that this man came to. To know that he has the power to heal and to save. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his power and his mercy. We thank you that he, he has power that is joined with pity. And we thank you then that we can come, not a single one of us has to go away without blessing. For all of us are, are, are full of sin from our head to our toes. All our good deeds are unclean things in your sight. And yet, Lord, we know that you sent your Son in the world not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And we come presenting ourselves before you again afresh as sinners in need of great grace. 
We do pray that we might know more and more the wonder of God's grace in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I will sing our final hymn, which is uh, 539. misplaced my hymn book. There it is. 539.
that is held out to us in the, this ordinance. We do pray that the, the symbolism of the bread and the wine would, would be a blessing to our hearts and fix our, the eyes of our hearts on the sufficiency of the saving work of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Great and glorious, majestic God, now we gather around this table to give thanks and praise for your love and mercy to us. We come to give thanks for a Saviour who's done great.